Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Coming up in today's interview, we have Katrina Malki from Finland talking about ADHD, nutrition, sea rescue, and yes, we do even discuss swords at least a little bit. I'm introducing two new sections of the introduction. Cool stuff on sword people, which will be a brief roundup of cool stuff that has happened on the sword people platform. And what I'm working on, which will be updates about my various projects. So first up, cool stuff from sword people. We've had some fascinating discussions. Anti Iyas from episode 155 shared a gorgeous photograph of a 19th century Finnish fencing sal with sabers and initiating a discussion into Finnish sources for historical fencing, of which there aren't many, truth be told. There has also been a lengthy discussion in the medieval section on Fiore's breaking the thrust and exchange of thrust. So the question being, when should you break, when should you exchange? Now, I shared my opinion, which is basically, if the sword is coming to the same side of your body that your sword is chambered on, so let's say your sword is on the right and the your, the attack is coming towards your right-hand side, you should break um, because trying to exchange across the line doesn't have enough force. You're not likely to clear the point across your body. Whereas if it's coming from the other side, so if it's chambered on your opponent's right-hand side, so coming towards your left side, um, then you have a chance to close the center with the exchange. You may have your own opinion and you're very welcome to join us on swordpeople.com and tell us what you think. At the moment, I am working on a whole load of different projects, such as a series of seven short videos, under five minutes each, covering ankle range of motion, knee safety, hip flexibility, hamstring flexibility, shoulder stability, neck stability, and wrist stability. And there will also be a couple of bonus videos, uh, basically putting those things together into short warm-up routines. I'm also getting the second edition of the Duelist Companion ready. It is in layout at the moment, which is extremely exciting. We took the photos back in 2019, so it's taken me four years to get from that stage to this. Um, Hopefully, it should be ready to pre-order in May. I have completed the transcription and translation of Fiore's Abrazzare section and the relevant bits from his introduction. In preparation for traveling to the USA, to shoot wrestling video with none other than Jessica Finley, which is going to be awesome. I'm also getting my head around the gigantic amount of material I need to include for my upcoming Yumpa course. Yumpa being the Finnish word for sort of physical jerks. And this is prehab and conditioning so that you can continue swinging swords well into old age, at least that's the plan. Um, the first video is already up on sword people in the training and conditioning section and sec- the second and third videos dealing with sorry the first video deals with feet and ankles and knees the second video is hips the third video is waist so yes there's some ab work in there and the fourth video is all about the shoulders getting them limbered up and stable Videos two, three, and four are available on sword people at the support sword people level of 
subscription. So that's five pounds a month. So I have stacks of work on, as you can imagine, which means that I need to ease off in other areas. And so the podcast is going to be shifting to coming out every two weeks rather than every week. And the weekly newsletter is now going to be a fortnightly newsletter. This literally halves the workload, but shouldn't make a great deal of difference. And it's not as if there aren't 150 odd other episodes you can listen to. If you haven't listened to all of them, then on the off weeks, I suggest you go back and go through some of the backlist. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Katrina Malki, who is a historical martial artist, nutritionist with an MSc from the University of Eastern Finland, a PhD student, a mum of four, plus a lizard. She's an author and also a sea rescue volunteer. So without further ado, Katrina, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I live in Finland, uh, Kuopio, which is uh, 200 kilometers from Russian border. Okay. Bit of a nervous time at the moment? Uh, slightly, yes. Okay. Yeah, well, given the speed that modern tanks move, you've got about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yes, I, I've been to Kuopio and, um, yeah, there's n- not a great deal there. It's sort of Finnish countryside with a, a small town in the middle of it. Yeah, it's yeah. really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, see, the pro- one of the problems I have as the interviewer, particularly when I'm interviewing someone I know, is I actually know the answers to most of the questions in advance anyway. Right? Uh-huh. So I have to remember to actually ask them because otherwise it gets a bit confusing. Now, for my next question, feel free to be honest. Sure. Okay. How did you get into historical martial arts? Well, um, I first went into sports fencing, mm-hmm. and I had to check the year. Uh, it was 2004, okay. and uh, there was a weekend, uh, sort of, for to get to know sports fencing. And um, then some of us really liked it, and I was actually one of the founding members of uh, the... Uh, sport fencing association in Kuopio in 2005 but then I gave two birth to two children in a row and stopped training because uh, well at the time I had rather incompatible husband so things didn't work out and then later uh, 2011 there was a beginner's course of um, historical martial arts in Kuopio and uh, well, I obviously signed in, and the rest is history. Okay. So, at that point, you had two kids, and they were a bit older, so you had a bit more sort of freedom to go and train. Yeah, they were older. Actually, I had three children at the time, but... Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's turning into a bit of a theme for this show, is interviewing women who managed to do historical martial arts while looking after a whole bunch of kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are. See, I, I, I get to say it's my job. So when I had children, it was like, okay, I'm off to work now, right? And that was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. Um, it is much harder to keep a hobby going when you have kids. So how did you manage that? Well, um, at that time, I realized that I have to do something on my own. 
mm-hmm. and you know doing uh, historical martial arts is something of an exercise so yep. it was both it was a hobby which took my thoughts elsewhere uh, really well and mm-hmm. uh, also it was something for me so it, you know exercise and you okay. know, a hobby it was a good combination and i just i just took the time to come to the training once a week so okay and got Excellent. the kids to got someone to look after the kids yes so you got a babysitter in and and so am i right in thinking you started your own club uh eventually yes um but it didn't last for a long time okay wow uh, well I didn't find enough people to run it. So okay. if I'm the only one sort of teaching and uh, handling all the administration stuff and mm-hmm. there are like three people or four people in the club. So it was not, how not practical. Say? No, it was not re- very practical. So I quit it and uh, just train with the same people without the club. Oh, okay. So, so the, the the activities continue, but the kind of formal organisation is gone. So you don't have to worry about yeah paperwork and admin and renting halls and that kind of stuff. Exactly. That's actually not a bad way to do it. And that's actually how <laughs> most most clubs start with a completely informal people getting together and doing stuff, and then they realise when they get big enough that they need yeah. to organise. That's um, true. So. I just did it a bit wrong way around, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Also, I mean, it's, it's useful, I think, for people listening who may be in similar situations to hear that um, if it becomes impractical to run it as a formal club, you don't yeah. have to. You can just carry on running it as an informal club instead, and it's fine. Yeah, and because you don't, for a few people, you don't need that much space. Mm-hmm. So in Finland, the organization or, or association is good if you need to hire a space or yeah. rent but since we don't need it it's not necessary okay excellent um and what is it that you practice well mostly fiore uh mm-hmm. like long swords because well that's what i know <laughs> <laughs> okay is that what you're most interested in uh yes um, the dagger and wrestling are also in my uh, scope of interest. Okay. Um, hmm. Hang on a sec. Yeah, that's fine. Um, okay. Now, so you're a nutritionist, but I know because you know we've spoken about such things that you are not a fan of dieting. Um, uh-huh. So <laughs> what exactly do you mean by that? And what actually is a nutritionist and what do you do? Okay, <laughs> that was a lot of questions. Um, well, dieting for, uh, first, uh, losing weight by dieting is very rarely sort of healthy way to actually lose weight. Okay. So um, how should you lose weight if you want um, to? Well, <sighs> the good solution is to gradually change what you eat. For instance, yeah. uh, increasing, um, vegetables, fruits, uh-huh. uh, this kind of stuff uh, into your diet and maybe drinking a bit less alcohol. So, yeah. 
Okay, okay. okay. Um, uh, when I went to my father's funeral in December on the Friday, before we had to drive up on the Saturday for the funeral on the Monday, mm-hmm. I, I was packing for the Saturday and I thought I'd just better try on my suit. And it turns out during lockdown, some absolute fucker broke into my house, <laughs> went through my entire wardrobe and every smart pair of trousers I owned, they'd taken in the waistband by a couple of centimetres. So they were too Absolutely. tight to fit. Right. <laughs> Bastard. Right. So I dashed out and I bought a suit. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, this is, this is not a good situation. Um, so about six weeks later, I was back into my old suit again. Hooray. Right. And the main thing I did was I cut out alcohol entirely for a month. That really helped. Yeah. Um, and I cut out fast carbs for breakfast. All right. Right. So I stopped having toast for breakfast and I was just vegetables and other stuff. Right. Yeah. So basically swapping out the toast for vegetables left over from dinner the night before. Yeah. Right? So it seems that I've been following your nutritional guidelines and it seems to have worked. Yeah. Adding vegetables and cutting out alcohol. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so yes, yeah, so, you know, back in back into the old suit. Now I got to get the new suit taken in, and then of course, same thing will happen again at some point, and I'll be like, "Oh fuck, now I need to go and buy another big suit." <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the, the trick is six weeks before I need it, I need to try the suit on because it, it yeah. takes me about four weeks to six weeks to shift. I know. Yeah. I don't. I don't have scales in the house, so I don't know how much I weigh, and I don't know how you know weights come on or gone off or anything like that. Yeah. Waist size is the only measurement I'm even considering. Actually, um, it's the best. Yeah. It is the very best. And if you have a belt, which uh, is good for you, for instance, now, that yeah. the suits uh, are good, um, just try on the belt. Yeah. I'd say weekly, and then you know where you're going. Yeah. I mean, and what I was doing with the trousers is to make sure that what I was doing was working – once a week, like on Saturday mornings, I think it was, I would try on the trousers and see if they fit. Yeah. And after about four or five weeks, that was a, yeah, I could wear this if I needed to. They weren't, they weren't fully comfortable in four or five weeks, but they at least, at least I could get them on. And if I needed to, you know, wear a suit for a day, I could do that without giving myself a hernia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, it's a good way. Yeah. Okay. So. I mean, you have an MSc in nutrition. Uh-huh. Right? What, what exactly does that entail? Well, um, I'm an authorized nutritionist in Finland, so I could go to a hospital and, um, you know, guide people to eat in certain way if they have a disease or a condition or something. So okay, it's the kind of highest level of um, nutritionist. Uh, what you need in hospitals? Okay. And, and, but what does the training involve? Because, I mean, it's not a medical degree because most doctors don't know anything about nutrition. Yeah, yes, it's not <laughs> medical. Um, oh my goodness. It's very, um, sort of multi science, uh, degree because we do first year is quite the same as what the doctors study. Mm-hmm. So basic human body stuff, and uh, then I have learned, um, for instance, how to guide someone to cook, even and okay. very practical stuff also. But then there's uh, 
chemistry, psychology, um, everything between. And then we're running up against some translation barriers here because terms yeah. in Finnish, medical terms in Finnish, often don't translate precisely to medical terms in English. That's true. Like, like for instance, most of my Finnish friends get inflammation and infection wrong in English. Yes. <laughs> right. I'm not surprised. Yeah, because I think because the the Finnish term for inflammation is, I think, infectio. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like no wonder they they get it mixed up because it's yeah. not it's, it's it's a false friend in the language. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, so I know we're kind of I know we're kind of bumping up against a language barrier, but I think it's not common for most people to get access to a nutritionist because it's not no. covered in most healthcare things. So for the sake of listeners who might be interested, I want to extract as much of your nutritionist stuff out of your head as possible. Well, that would um, take a lot of time. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, but but surely we can cover your entire MSC in like 15 minutes of chat, right? Yeah. No? <laughs> um, okay, so, uh, okay, let me, let me throw a, a specific question at you. Uh-huh. It's well known that different foods affect different people differently, okay? So, you know, a donut that spikes my blood sugar might not spike yours, um, but ice cream might spike yours but not mine, for instance. And I actually happen to have tested this with a with a continuous blood glucose monitor, and ice cream does not particularly spike my blood glucose. Toast is actually worse for me than ice cream in that regard. No, I so, believe that, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so the question is, um, what should a person do to find out what works for them in terms of nutrition? In terms of nutrition, um, well, the best thing to do is uh, to... Well, that was one wide question. Um, okay, let me make it easier. Um, somebody comes into your office. Let's say you are working in a hospital. I know you're doing a PhD at the moment, so you're probably not spending much time working in hospitals. But let's say you're in the hospital and somebody comes in with some nutrition-related disease. Or maybe they, they just managed to get their doctor to give, give them a referral just so they can get some good advice on their nutrition, right? Uh-huh. For general exactly. health purposes. We're not treating a specific disease, okay? What would you tell them to do? Eat more vegetables. Okay. That's the usual. <clears throat> and right. uh, have more colors in their food. Okay. Because that gives um, maturity of the very much needed nutrients, but also check that they have uh, enough sort of, um, sorry, I'm getting some words, but um, That's okay. it's um, like oil. Yeah, fat. Yeah. Okay. O- but exactly oil, or uh, it's uh, like rapeseed oil or something like that. Okay. Because um, often people think that they should not eat any fat, or some people think that. And it's that's a terrible not, idea. It's a terrible idea, actually. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll die. <laughs> if you don't get any fat at all, you'll die. Yeah. And there are some very um, very much needed nutrients in fat, but it has to be sort of runny, that fat. Oh, so you're not a fan of saturated fats then? Really? wonder why. Are you, are you familiar with the... Hang on a sec. I'm just going to... All right, this is this is this is too important. I'm just going to do a quick bit of googling. The Minnesota study done in like the 60s or the 70s, where uh-huh. they took thousands of inmates of various institutions because they could control their diet really precisely, 
Okay. And they, one cohort had all animal fat removed from their diet, and mm-hmm. they were just given vegetable fats. And the other cohort had basically a normal proportion of like animal fats and vegetable fats and various other things. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if I remember rightly, they had to, um, they had to abort the ex- experiment early because the people in the no animal fats cohort were dying at a much faster rate than those who were getting the animal fats. All right. Um, and this, this was run by a cardiologist who was so offended by the results that he got, because he was very much in the vegetable fat camp, that he buried the data. And it was discovered like 40 years later, so maybe about 10, 15 years ago, um, in these sort of digital tapes, right, in the in the basement of his house, long okay. after he died. Fascinating. Right? Yeah. Um, it's discussed in a book called The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teichholz, T-E-I-C-H-O-L-Z. All right. Um yeah, because I'm I'm very much I'm very much in the animal fats good vegetable fats we have to be careful camp. I I know that yes. <laughs> so so go ahead yeah shoot me down that's fine. All right. Um, well, any sort of um, saturated fat mm-hmm. can be done in the body. So if we get these uh, long chain fats mm-hmm. like vegetable fats, they can be cut down into shorter, which is saturated fat. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything you need, you can, the body can make the saturated fat in, on its own. But okay. what, so yes, it's okay to eat uh, saturated fat, but uh, the knowledge of is it very needed is not certain. Uh, and at the moment, um, the uh, data from Hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. uh, studies shows that, um, well, that we, uh, we need the um, long-chained fat, which is like rapeseed uh, or olive oil, but the rest is uh, okay to eat, but may not be that necessary. But what is also commonly uh, sort of misleading in some studies mm-hmm. that... Um, it's not sort of ceteris paribus, as I could to describe. If one thing changes... Sorry, what was, what was that word? Ceteris paribus. It's usually um, it's Latin. Okay. Um, I applied to um, economic school when I was young, so this is what I remember of that stuff. Okay. <laughs> Apply. Um, so... If one thing changes in diet, it usually changes something else because you have to put something instead. If you yeah. take something out, there's some going to be something, you know. If there yeah, are well, like 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 a low fat yogurt, we usually have sugar added. Yeah, and yeah. Um, if there's carbs, if you take them out, there's going to mm-hmm. be more protein and fat, you know. Yeah. So in nutrition studies, there's Mm, always interaction. So the and in the seventies uh, they might not know what was the interaction with some other things that they uh, looked after. So there is no. It's not possible to study only one thing unless you're sort of having it on a 
plate and looking at it in a microscope or mm-hmm. something like that. It's like human beings are really, really complex and it's, nothing is like 100% sure. Sure. So, yeah. But, I mean, if, decapitation will definitely kill you and breathing yes. is definitely good for you, but everything else in between is negotiable. Yeah. So, as you said, there are things that suit for you, might not suit for me for several reasons, like you're a man. That's mm-hmm. like one big reason reason um, for some th- things not to be equal in nutrition sure. or like in medication or, or anything like that. So we are different on cell level, but if there is a consensus on something that's like uh, this um, Mediterranean diet style, mm-hmm. so that's what... I would recommend uh, to common people who have no um, restrictions in their diet. Mm-hmm. And um, it has a good combination of uh, nutrients. Okay. So you're a fan of the Mediterranean diet. Okay. Less so, less so than paleo. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the paleo diet. Okay, 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 okay. For the listeners who couldn't see that. She just literally covered her face in both hands and kind of cringed when I said paleo diet. Now, let me, okay, before this becomes an argument, let me say, I don't follow the paleo diet and I am deeply suspicious of the story that it tells, just from a historian perspective, because firstly, we don't really know what cavemen actually ate. Secondly, we are pretty sure that cavemen didn't actually live that long. So what, what part did their diet play in you know, how long they lived yep. is unknown. And also, whatever we do have for what people from pre-industrial societies or pre-agricultural societies more accurately ate, it varies enormously from place to place yeah. because it's entirely dependent on what happens to be local. And of course, these people are often nomadic, so they'll be eating different things in different places at different times of the year and so on. So I I, I find I find the the story of the paleo diet to be unconvincing. Right. However, I'm quite Yeah, but but if I want to lose weight, going paleo is and cutting out alcohol is a fast way to do it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the carbs in UK and carbs in Finland are different thing. How so? Uh, Like we eat rye bread. Yep. Which I'm allergic to, by the way. Huh? Which I'm I'm allergic to rye and wheat, so I can't eat them anyway. Which is very very sad. That's sad, yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like, if the carbs have a lot of um, fiber, mm-hmm. it's a good combination. It's not something you should absolutely sort of forget from your diet. And, you know, like, vegetables are carbs. Mostly, yeah, sure. And water, too, but... Uh, yeah, but that, I mean, there is not- a... There is a difference in how, for example, the starches in cabbage hit your system relative to the starches in a slice of white bread. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, they're, they're both carbs, technically, but from a nutritional perspective, surely they, you wouldn't treat them the same because they, they are acted on very differently by the body. Yeah. That's true. Okay. So, there so is no. There are shades of grey in the land. <laughs> yeah. More than 50. <laughs> so if you look at it black and white, then it's uh, likely to lead to some kind of um, 
<laughs> like it can lead to to strong dieting, and we yeah. have to remember that dieting is a, a multi-billion um, industry which makes you feel bad on how you look. So it should, <clears throat> if you need to lose weight, it should be on how you're feeling, like, or are you feeling strong enough to have do what you like to do and uh, swing a sword or <laughs> or that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. it should not be about the looks. No, but fitting into your trousers is quite important. It's very convenient. Because <laughs> it's, it's bloody expensive to go and buy a new suit every time you need to go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, increasing weight size with age is not correlated with improved health outcomes. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, There are stuff like how many uh, centimetres you waste should be and that's sort of associates with um, likelihood with uh, heart diseases, mm-hmm. for instance. So, yes, size matters. But if you're trying to lose weight, it's not um, – it doesn't happen I- um, instantly. It, well, no, it shouldn't. Yeah, well, it has taken time to gain the weight. So, But usually the industry people uh, or who – tell you that um, this is a sort of fast way to losing weight. Yeah, eat eat these magic protein bars and you will look like this person who has been training like a complete fucking maniac for the last 20 years. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There are no such things. (laughs) No. Um, Okay, where do you stand on um, fasting? Well, uh, as we just spoke that people... um, I mean, not for weight loss, just for like general health practices. Yeah. Uh, people are very tolerant on many things upon their body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not specifically healthy for the uh, intestine, mm-hmm. but um, it's possible to do. And uh, some people find it intriguing or they find they can sort of control their life or something. So... It's okay, but our intestine needs um, sort of food. It, it, it is healthy for the intestine to have um, something in uh, every day. Okay. So, so you would um, – okay. There is, there is a bunch of evidence that you know, fasting in a you – know, not excessively – but occasional, like two-day fast, three-day fast, maybe even a five-day fast once a year, something like that, does all sorts of good things to your like triglycerides, triglycerides in your blood and blood pressure and various other things. So, um, but you think that there is a, uh, it's probably better to do a sort of fast where you do actually eat something every day. That would be better. Okay. That would be better, but. Um as I said, humankind can handle a lot of different kinds of um, stuff with their nutrition. Okay. So, so where, where? Okay, okay. Let, let's see if this has the same effect. What about the ketogenic diet? Oh, okay, that was more of a kind of a nose wrinkle. It wasn't like both hands over the face. It was just a nose wrinkle. It's like, okay. Okay, there are people who actually benefit from it. Sure. Like... Uh, some 
Epileptics, for example, sometimes. Yes, there are some small patient uh, groups that have a benefit from it. Mm -hmm. But it has to be done really sort of carefully, specifically, and um, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. Okay. Yeah, I've tried it a few times, and for a short period, it does wonders. Like, for example, um, I did this very long walk for charity, and it was like... It was like 50 kilometers in a day, 50 kilometers in about 12 hours. So it was a bloody long walk. Um, And I thought, you know what? Best thing to do, go into ketosis for this because ketosis is perfect for endurance stuff. And sure enough, I hardly ate anything the whole day. I I used um, a ketogenic diet to get into ketosis a day or two before. Yeah. So I was well into, metabolically well into ketosis by the Saturday morning when I was going on this walk. And... It was great. I, mean, I had a little ketogenic snack at about, I don't know, midday or something. But at the end of the day, my muscles were tired and my yeah. back injury was playing up, which is why I didn't do the second day. But I was, you know, energetically speaking, I was completely fine. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I would I would use it for that sort of thing. Like if you're going to do an endurance run, I would want to do it in ketosis because like you use about 30% less oxygen to get the same amount of energy. So it's just... It just makes your life easier, I think. If you want to try, then. <laughs> okay, I've tried some stuff during my studies. Yeah. I know how it feels. Yeah. So I, I have a friend also who, who you know, because ketosis is like fashionable, he thought he'd give it a go. And about three days in, he started to get these really black thoughts, really kind of nasty, like bordering on like, psychotic thoughts so he's like this isn't good so he (laughs) ate a bunch of carbs and felt a lot better (laughs) yeah that's what i said people are different on cell level (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly exactly so yeah so it's something that well okay to try but be careful and watch how it makes you feel and if it's not suiting you don't do it i mean it suits me quite well like on, on ketosis i am if i can be bothered to get into it i am much more energetic and productive so if, I, if, if all I really cared about was writing the most number of books and getting the most amount of exercise, I would probably stay in ketosis all the time. <laughs> but it's, it's not a lifestyle I'm interested in, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of uh, sort of mental energy to handle it. Yeah, because you, you have to be super careful to avoid all sorts of things that you would normally eat. Like yeah. carrots, too many carrots. It's too very much. antisocial. Yeah, too, and too much protein, like, you know, nice big steak, straight out of ketosis. Loads yeah. of carrots, straight out of ketosis. Doesn't, it doesn't take a chocolate bar to knock you out of ketosis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, I know that you are uh, very interested in the ADHD thing, and we have – I just want to make – for anyone who's listening for the first time, I don't ask my guests surprise questions generally. I mean – Stuff may come up in conversation that we hadn't planned, but <laughs> I, w- I would put it this way. I wouldn't normally ask someone I had not prearranged this question. Okay, so this is something that we had discussed in advance. All right. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, so when were you diagnosed with ADHD and how does having it affect your studies and training? All right. So I have a very traditional path to um, diagnosis. One of my children was diagnosed uh, in 2017 
And I realized that my symptoms are quite similar. So, such as, such as <clears throat> lack of executive functioning, hyperactivity, internal, external, lack of uh, attention span. Okay. So, so just, just lack of executive function. People, people throw the phrase executive function about all the time, but it has very specific meanings. So let's just be really precise about what we're talking about. I found a decade-old scientific article um, about executive functioning by Adele Diamond, which nicely caters up the topic. So basically, okay. it includes um, behavioral inhibition. That is self-control. Um, you don't act um, on everything that sounds attempting <clears throat> for a few seconds, but it could be harmful if you think of it again such as cheating your partner or using drugs, um, then interference control, uh, which means uh, selective attention instead of uh, seeing, hearing, sensing everything that's around you, or that's what you think and all that sort of stuff. Um, it also contains working memory, so you don't forget uh, what you were doing in the middle of cooking, for instance, or if you have promised a friend something and you just forget it in a minute. <laughs> and uh, cognitive flexibility, which means it's easy to shift from one task to another without being really angry. Okay, now that last one I do not have. Like, no, no, no. If somebody interrupts me when I'm working on something, like this bubble of, of function just pops and I get really cross. It's like... <laughs> This is why my phone is always on silent and usually on airplane mode because yeah. the notion that someone should just ring me up because they happen to want to talk to me right now is just no. Yeah, it's really irritating. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so Adele Diamond's um, definition kind of encapsulates what executive functioning actually is. Yeah, the paper is sort of... Okay, we'll stick a link in the show notes so people can read it for themselves. Um, yeah. But basically, we're talking about behavioral inhibition being basically not just acting on impulse. Yeah. And then interference control means not being overwhelmed by multiple streams of input. So yeah. um, you can see something and forget about what you're hearing. Whereas if you're if this is compromised, then then you'll be seeing and hearing everything all at once, and you can't you can't separate yeah, it out. Yeah. Um, so working memory, so, so executive function, working memory is involved because um, it's you have to be able to kind of operate on things that have recently been absorbed. Yeah. Okay. Rather than just forgetting what you would. But I mean, everyone has the experience of like going into the kitchen to look for a pair of scissors and they've, when they get into the kitchen, they've forgotten what they were looking for. Yeah. Um, but so this is like a more extreme version of that. Um. I can tell an extreme version. Go on then. I start washing my teeth, uh, and then I just go with a toothbrush. I go um, to sort some clothes uh, to the washing machine, uh, answer to an Instagram uh, message while doing the something else, get back to sorting clothes, remember that I forgot something, and walk to the toilet just to realize I was washing my teeth. I lost my toothbrush somewhere. Then I hear my youngest to ask for help and rush for him. And uh, except on the way, I pause because um, one of the teens is saying something to me. And 
uh, if they have like is the bus card still valid or uh, then I find my toothbrush from somewhere uh, <laughs> and notice that my youngest is playing with the lizard and um, wonder if um, the lizard is somewhere in trouble because uh, well they are usually <laughs> So this is your pet lizard, just to be clear. This is not just a random lizard walking yes. around the house. This is a pet yeah. lizard. <laughs> we have a pet lizard. <laughs> okay. It's, sometimes it randomly runs around the house, but it's ours. <laughs> okay. And then I may, it might be start making coffee. And then I just forget what I was doing and uh, wonder where my clothes are. And <laughs> okay. then my husband is looking at me like this. Have you taken your meds today? <laughs> right and you're like no obviously I haven't because the toothbrush is in the laundry <laughs> and the coffee is in the lizard <laughs> okay. so yeah Thanks. and the cognitive flexibility thing is, is quite straightforward it's like the ability to shift tasks without being disrupted yeah okay. without yeah being when you say lack of executive function how does that manifest uh well, it's um, it's the sort of meta work you do. Like, um, for instance, um, cleaning is not really my thing. Um, if we talk in computer terms, it's like um, there is the software how to clean, and um, and there are a hard drive, my brain. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't have the drivers. You know, okay. like in, in the old computers, you ne needed to find the, the drivers for the software to come, uh, for the um, software to be compatible with the hardware. Yeah, like I, I remember downloading drivers for a new printer off the internet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and it's like, I don't have the drivers. Like, I have a brain and yeah. I know the software, how to do it, but uh, like compiling... Um, all the little bits and pieces of tidying up the house. It's like, what? Like last weekend, there were guests coming because it was my husband's birthday. Mm -hmm. And I just piled everything to our sauna, which is not heated, obviously, but <laughs> it's an empty room. So yeah. I took everything from the kitchen and living room and stuffed it over there. And now my husband has to do <laughs> pick it up and find places to all the stuff back you know so 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 you tied it up by basically shoving everything into a cupboard yes <laughs> okay and and that is because putting things back where they're supposed to go just didn't compute no uh, it's huh. like okay i have an object in my hands and it's like what the heck is this okay i recognize but i don't know where to put it okay so would it i think everybody has had the experience of Tidying up quickly to shove everything into a cupboard and forget about it, right? I think almost everybody has has done that at some point. That by that by itself wouldn't be considered like a, as a one off. That wouldn't be considered a lack of executive function. That would be I'm in a hurry or I can't be bothered or I just don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you distinguish between I can't be bothered, I just don't care, with this is a lack of executive function caused by ADHD? Because it's all the time there. Like okay. I put something away from my hand and I don't know what to put it actually, where it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Like it's our house is a mess until my husband cleans it or tells me what to do with it. And um, well, there are a lot of other stuff like, um, well, let's say this uh, at primary school, kids are told what to do and when and where to go and all that stuff. Like in university and um, work life, you have to figure all that out yourself. Yeah, that's super hard. Yeah, which classes to take, which, uh, um, sorry, this is one of the <laughs> problems in ADHD. I, I for, might forget in the middle of sentence what I was saying. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, so when you get to university and you don't have that exterior structure keeping yes. you straight, then you, it's, it, you struggle to kind of figure out what you're supposed to be doing and where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to have yeah. with you and that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but you still managed to get an MSc, which is not easy. It sure wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was mad enough to go to do um, PhD studies. But okay, yeah. what, what's your what are you studying for your PhD? Um, eating behavior of aging men uh, with um, elevated risk for type two diabetes. Ah, interesting. Okay, um, and so you're you're basically taking your nutritional expertise and applying it into a particular narrow area as PhDs tend to do. Yes. Okay. That's true. But yeah. And, and, and so, okay, maybe this would be a better way to put it. Since being diagnosed and I assume treated in some way. Oh, finally, yes. Right. Okay. What's changed? Uh, everything. <laughs> like, like what? Ah, oh my goodness. Um, let's just say that, <clears throat> for instance, we have um, this final exam mm-hmm. in uh, master student phase, and <clears throat> I might not have been able to, for instance, sit still for four hours, which the exam took, and then concentrate for that long. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, manage my head to sort of not to do everything else because it it's all over the place unless I had the medication. Okay, so what medication are you on? Uh, Some kind of amphetamine, I assume. Um, yes. Should we say a neurotypical person taking amphetamines gets all revved up and hyperactive? I've heard, yes. Right, that, that's, that is kind of what they were developed for, if I remember rightly. Yeah. So, so what is the effect on your brain? What does it do? It makes my uh, different parts of my brain to synchronize. That's how okay. I would describe it. Okay. And because I'm hyperactive, even though I'm an adult, mm-hmm. and both my mind is all over the place, and I can't sit still for a very long time, and um, I like, um, I like to move, so. Yeah, I have a standing desk, so I'm I'm literally moving around all the time while we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan of sitting still either. Yeah, it's um, but it's sort of like there's a concert going on in my head, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's not chaos anymore. It's like the different parts of my brain don't play their own instruments and like I want to play drums now and I don't listen to uh, all the other parts and but now they are like it's like symphony okay. and it's and it's so beautiful <laughs> i actually i always thought that there is some part of me i can't find 
it was underneath all these sort of difficulties and like a layer. And um, when I got the medication, I thought, wow, that's me. Now I can find myself and learn to behave like in a society. Okay. Wow. That's, um, that's a powerful endorsement for the, for the medication for sure. Okay, so what is most useful to you in sort of everyday life to cope with the ADHD, other than the medication, obviously? Yes. Um, for me, at least, it's um, the physical exercise because it makes my uh, brain to focus easier. If okay. I just sit by the computer the whole day, um, some point uh, my thoughts just start going all over the place and uh, it's it's really difficult to focus so either in the morning or during the day at some point it's really good to have some exercise have a walk or do or come to my train alarm sessions yes absolutely <laughs> which actually are quite a good time of day for you 10 30 in the morning so you can get a couple of hours work in and then because fins tend to start early right yeah usually um, yeah like i mean here we say nine to five for the normal work day and Finland is eight to four. Yeah, that's true. So you have eight to four work and then you have four to eight drinking. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we start early, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so if you start at eight, like after a couple of hours, you get an hour of exercise and then that, that helps with the rest of the day, does it? It is such a big um, impact that, when I exercise, I can actually do stuff all the way to eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the evening, and then it's just it's okay to sort of stop at eight or nine in the evening. Wow. Okay. So it really makes a huge difference to how much you can get on in a day. Yeah. Wow. Well, good for you. So lots of exercise then. Yeah. It's often the case that sort of I don't like the term neurotypical, but it seems to be the one we're stuck with. Yeah. Um, like um, departures from like a neurotypical base, like for instance ADHD or some forms of autism or whatever. Yeah. At certain levels of that departure, obviously, if you go really far, then it becomes impossible for you to function properly. But yeah. at some point along that way, there are advantages. Like for instance, um, you know, the classic would be an autistic kid who is a brilliant computer programmer. Yeah. Right? Because they've taken that that particular way of being in the brain is is not very good at some things, but is extremely good at this narrow band of things. Yeah. Right? Is there any can you think of any sort of compensating benefits for ADHD? Well, I get into flow much easier than what it seems to other people. Does that go away when you're on the medication? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, it doesn't go away. I can still get into the flow when I am medicated. So, but it's more difficult to get there. Slightly, but then I don't get stuck uh, at sitting on the uh, living room um, for eight hours. I actually remember to eat. And go to the toilet. <laughs> okay. Stuff, but I can hop in to this, uh, what I'm fascinated about. 
Mm. And okay. for instance, when you're speaking about uh, like swords, mm -hmm. um, like I may train some little bit of like how the dagger goes and how the wrist is and all that sort of stuff. I can do it for ages if I'm really fascinated on that sure. a particular little thing. So, but uh, <laughs> okay, how does that square with the? attention deficit side of things because it it appears to be um well okay let me put it another way how come that doesn't work with tidying up i don't know it's do, not do you like, enough <laughs> okay so so you don't really have a conscious choice over what you're able to get into flow about yeah okay so right. it's just like Speaking of tidying up, I, I have to show you something, right? I, I made this cabinet for my study a little while ago, and I'm just going yeah. to pull out one of the drawers. I'll put a picture in the show notes. But basically, I've got this foam insert in the bottom of the drawer, and these are the sort of general house tools, and they all have, each one has their own little cutout spot. Like there's a spot for a screwdriver, there's a spot for a spanner, and it's... Uh-huh, like, yeah. Because... That way, I actually know where they all are. Because otherwise, they end up just in all sorts of funny places. Uh-huh. Um, I once lost my glasses for about a day and a half, and I yeah. found them inside a toolbox. Oh! Because they're my distance glasses, and and I'd, I'd been doing something close up that needed a tool, and obviously using a tool, you're often working very close. So I took my uh -huh. distance glasses off, I put them down in the convenient spot, which was in the toolbox. Yes. Pulled the tool out there, I did the thing, put the tool back, forgot about the glasses, didn't see the glasses, and then, <laughs> like, it was a couple of days, and the kids were, like, looking all over the house and everything, and, and finally I find the glass. I thought, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, I was doing that thing, and maybe, maybe I got a tool out of the toolbox, and it was just a, like, we looked everywhere. I looked in the yeah. car, taking the car almost to pieces to see if it's falling oh. the seats. Everything, yeah. So, yeah, having having one spot where things always go, super useful, I find. That would be, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my solution is, is to build cabinets for that sort of thing. Like, like um, my, my, my Swiss Army knife, there's one spot where it lives, and it's in this drawer... Under my monitor. Yeah, anyway. well, I, I would need everything intact with my body, like. <laughs> yeah, but you because see, people people have these amazing amazing clothes which have like billions pocket. of pockets on them, and you know, like I was, I tried to get a flying suit for doing flying it because one of the hardest things when flying a plane is navigating because you've got a map and you've you've got. Um, a protractor and a ruler for the distances and it's all bloody complicated and there's all <laughs> bits and pieces all over the place yeah. and you have to be juggling all of this while flying the plane so a flying <laughs> suit has like some of them have these whiteboard inserts on the front of the thighs so you can literally oh. write on your leg right fantastic but yeah. problem is i am such a weird shape that either i could either i could like get into the flying suit and it kind of fit from shoulder to um, thigh, right? Yeah. But then the legs were literally 20 centimetres too long. Oh, no. Right? Or they could fit more or less in the leg and and I couldn't actually get it on because 
basically, I have a very long back and very short legs. And oh, so yeah. I have no flying suit. I need to get one tailor made and I don't have the money and it's totally unnecessary. And but yes, <laughs> the pockets, if you want pockets, get a flying suit. They yes. Are amazing pockets. But then you sometimes have to take it off and then I would forget to put it off. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but not if you're on your drugs. Not if you're on your drugs. Then you then you'd remember. <laughs> oh, but then you wouldn't need it. So does this does this go away when you're on the amphetamines? Um, it doesn't completely go away, but mm-hmm. because uh, if I'm stressed, then I forget a lot of stuff. Okay. It affects like lack of sleep affects stronger, and uh, you know if I'm agitated. Mm-hmm. It's also something that affects um, a lot stronger. And um, basically everything, it's like, how should I say? Uh, it, everything is heightened, even though I have the medication. But okay. it sort of calms, it does calm me down because of the synchronization of the brain and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. But uh, it's not like the medication doesn't take the ADHD away. It just helps with the practical stuff. Okay. Does it interfere with your sleep at all? It improves my sleep. The medication is... Wow. The notion of amphetamines improving sleep. If ever we needed proof that you cannot necessarily predict the effect of a drug on a system, there it is. Like, amphetamines should not improve your sleep. They should keep you awake. That's what they're for. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know. (laughs) If, If I remember rightly, like... Amphetamines were developed to keep soldiers awake when they they couldn't otherwise stay awake. I think I think that's what they were originally for. Sometime in the fifties or sixties. All right. I may be I may be I may be wrong. I'm I may be getting this from some I don't know thriller novel for the eighties. I don't know, but somewhere in the back of my head, that's where that's that's the story I have in my head about where amphetamines come from. So yeah. All right. I'll take um, mine in the morning. So okay, and they improve it. That's fantastic. Okay, so. If you want as a student going to historical martial arts classes, yeah. um, what advice would you have for instructors who have students who have ADHD? How can All they right. do a better job of teaching? Have patience uh, and don't get pissed uh, because some people don't focus that well at the first go. Okay. And it's not a personal insult. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, don't chat too long. Like, I really like your way to demonstrate, maybe say a word or two, and then you know, you, you just say that, have a pair and bish, bosh, bosh. Yeah. And then I get to have a go, and then I find out, oh, I did realize some bit of this thing. And then I just try to look another way to do it, or then you show it again, or something like that. But there's an um, example. This is not fencing, but uh, there's an example. Um, just a couple of weeks back, I had a gun, first time in my life at my hand. Okay. And there were like there was an um, indoor shooting range, and uh, it was a simulator, so no real bullets. No real gun. Okay. Uh, but uh, similar. Feels, feels like one, yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, because there were so many little details to listen before you, uh, to take it on hand and to, um, how to grip it and how to everything. Yeah. So 
in the end of this really long line of um, uh, instructions, instructions, yeah. I had to. Um, I I couldn't remember what they said last, so I started shooting as the other women did, and I shot on the gray area of head yeah. of the figure, and we should have shot on the uh, belly. Okay. And the instructors asked after the five rounds, like, why were you doing that? I was like looking at the other women's uh, this um, mm-hmm. shooting as like, holy shit, I did <laughs> something completely wrong. But this gray area was easier to focus on. It was yeah. smaller and uh, than the belly area. So there were too many instructions. Too many instructions. See, that, that is the problem. I was shooting in um, the Helsinki Shooting Club, which is now called Osova, uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Helsinki. And because I hadn't shot there for a long time, I had to go through their safety briefing again. And yeah. it was all perfectly competent and everything. But and you know, I'm deeply familiar with the requirements anyway, so it was relatively easy to follow. But... There was absolutely no way someone who was experiencing it for the first time would remember after 10 minutes what was said at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, they have to be able to demonstrate to the insurance company that they, or to the cops, that they had gone through all of the safety procedures before the accident happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, so basically, it's, it's, what you're describing, it does sound to me like any historical martial arts taught competently should be fine because competence requires that you give the students one thing to do, one clear instruction, they know exactly what they're doing, this one thing, and then they go ahead and do that. Yes, yes. Right? Exactly. It's just it's just plain wrong to say focus on your footwork and your grip and your targeting and your timing and your measure. You know, it's like, like, no, that's just wrong. That's just bad yeah. instruction. Okay. That's, that's too much. And uh, I need repetition as an ADHD person. So I don't learn everything in one go. Mm-hmm. Where, well, people usually don't, but ADHD people uh, need usually more. Okay. Unless they sort of super focus on something. But um, it's good to keep in mind that there are different types of learners anyway. So, okay. So, um, let's say you're an instructor with ADHD. What uh-huh. what would be helpful for them? I mean, I'm, I would hope that anyone with ADHD is getting proper support and a proper diagnosis and all that. But I mean, you got your diagnosis in your forties, correct? I was forty-two. Forty-two, right? So, you know, you might have been teaching martial arts for twenty years by the time you know you got a diagnosis. Yeah. So, um, if you are an instructor with ADHD. What what do you think might be helpful to them for them to know? Um, patience again. <laughs> you okay. need to calm calm yourself down before the class. Um, and if you have a diagnosis, then think what you need help with. And if you have a co instructor, then have a chat with that person. What's the sort of what you are good at and what needs to be improved. But it also depends on a lot of the person since, as I said before, there are sort of three aspects. So if there's a lack of executive functioning, um, 
you might want to think if the, if the planning itself is an issue for you, and if you are internally or externally hyperactive, uh, it's good to stick to the plan what you have, and because if you are internally sort of um, hyperactive, it, it's like it's like having dozens of dozens of things in your head at the same time. So have a plan and stick to it. Yeah, every time I talk to somebody with ADHD, I think I should probably get myself checked for ADHD. <laughs> you're just, I mean, I use, I have a class structure that is almost always the same so that I can follow my instinct regarding what the class needs next without ending up in the weeds. Uh-huh. Right? But by having that external structure, which is like, you know, usually like for a Fury class, it'll be like warm up. Uh, footworky type stuff, daggery type stuff, longsword handling, longsword pair drills of various complexities, and then finish, right? Something like that. And so within that framework, I can bounce around quite a bit without it being bad for the students. I can follow yep. a thread all the way through. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't find that a really rigid class plan, okay, at this time we're going to do this drill and then we're going to move on to that drill and then we're going to move on to that drill. I don't find that helpful because very often doing that first drill means that when I'm watching the students do it, I realize, hang on, the the best next step is not this thing that was on the plan. Looking at what they actually need, we should do this thing instead, right? But having that overall structure to fit things into lets me be creative on the way without getting lost. Yeah, well, the getting lost is the thing that might happen to an instructor with ADHD. Right. So for you, I would say you seem to have some sort of uh, features, but <laughs> but if I was diagnosing, I wouldn't diagnose you as a uh, okay ADHD person. Oh, good. All right. So and for instance, my husband has an uh, he's an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and has a own business to run and. He's like, it's sometimes it seems to me like he's all over the place, like he's handling a lot of stuff, and uh, yet he is very neurotypical. Okay. So, yeah, it's like he do- he really doesn't get some of my thoughts I have. He has learned obviously mm-hmm. to cope with me, and for <laughs> some really odd reason, he's like in love with me and everything. But you know, but um, plan is something that. Um, it's good to be there or a structure, mm-hmm. but uh, for an instructor with ADHD, it's like not going every place all the time and, you know, like, Stick to I don't the know script. what to say. Yeah, yeah, it's like, and if there, if you can sort of have a person as a mirror, then use it so to sort of see what's working and what is not. Okay. Excellent. Um, now, you also write stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know from previous interactions with you that um, writing stories is for you quite a lot like teaching historical martial arts. Would you like to expand on that a bit and tell, tell us what kind of stories you write and how it relates to teaching historical martial arts? Well, um, writing instructors often say, um, show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. And that's something... What I like also when someone is um, instructing a uh, any physical activity, 
is like a specific um, movement. Mm -hmm. um, it's like it's three dimensional, but if you start sort of extracting into words, it might become very difficult to follow. Mm -hmm. So, I, that's for me the hard part of writing my books is that for me. My understanding of a particular historical martial art is is a three dimensional shape or a four dimensional shape because it, it changes in time, right? Uh -huh. Okay. And and if you imagine it like a crystal, it's not a crystal, but imagine it's like a crystal, which has which is made up of all these, or like a um, a molecular diagram of a crystal, mm. right? You because you have to put it in words which are linear, you have to basically unravel the whole thing into a single thread. That you can go from the one end to the other of. Whereas yes. really, it should all be jumbled up like an enzyme, right? Which is just a string of amino acids. But when, yeah. when they're put together, they kind of clump up into this very specific three dimensional shape. So yeah. So for me, the, the writing is like taking that three dimensional shape and then un, untwisting it into a straight line. Yeah. Which is weird. But, um, as I'm writing science fiction, um, I might show sort of uh, by this person gringed or is uh, running away. It's like yeah. it's um, it tells a lot more than explaining uh, in a long sentence that this person is feeling that the cyborg is uh, very sort of um, threatening and you know all that. Yeah, sort yeah. Of it's so, like so rather than talking about the feelings of the characters, you show them what they're doing, and the reader can sort of uh, extrapolate the feelings from that. Yeah. Well, okay. And and I mean, you write in Finnish, correct? Yes. Okay, uh, but translate into English occasionally. Well, I have written only one book, and I translated it in English because uh, I have many friends in who don't speak Finnish. And they asked me what I was writing about, and uh, I was like, "But, but it's it's like translating a whole book." It was like they kept asking, and I was like, "Okay, I can translate it." And um, yes, it's now in two languages. <laughs> okay, so um, okay, top tip: you're on a podcast, people are listening. Some of those people might want to read your book, so you should <laughs> maybe just drop the title gently in there and just <laughs> accidentally. Let them know where they could get the book if they were so interested. It's uh, called Cyber War in 2037. Cyber War in 2037, yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, I basically wrote a story what I would like to read. Okay. There's uh, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, mm -hmm. there's tension, humor, struggle, friendship. All that sort of stuff. Why? Why twenty thirty seven? Why that year? It just that's what came to you. In your it head. just popped. All right, but it also is in a line with the whole saga. What, what whole saga? Uh, I'm writing a saga. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 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 it fits in with the rest of the this book, not not published yet. Okay. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so, Cyber War in 2037. That sounds like a very interesting book, Katrina. Where can people get it if they want? <laughs> Come on! It's, um, it's available published. in all good bookshops. 
I wish. Uh, it's online bookstores only because okay. I sure. published uh, by myself and uh, uh, it's books on demand um, in Finland, but Amazon is the widest place to go for it. Okay, excellent. Um, did you use draft digital for the ebook distribution? No. Okay, you might want to look into them because they will distribute it to every online retailer for you without you having to find those retailers yourself. Oh, okay. Um, really, really useful. Um, if I was publishing a book for the first time today, I would do draft to digital for all ebooks and I would do ink and spark for all print. Hmm. That would be my, just to keep things simple. You can get more complicated and have like, I mean, I have separate accounts at various different online stores like, um, KDP for Amazon and Kobo. And it's at right. one point I was uploading things separately to Apple and also to Barnes and Noble. Um, but yes, there are these, these services that will do all that for you these days, which yeah. save so much time and effort. Um, I bet. Yes. I actually took the, uh, books on demand because they do some distribution in Finland. Okay. But, uh, globally, I'm, I wasn't very, uh, sort of, Fascinated on that yeah. at the time. Right. But uh, let's see how this goes on. So. Okay. Um, now, we do have to ask about the this sea rescue training because it does sound fascinating. So what, what is that all about? Well, um, it's about being at, well, at Lake here in Kopio, but um, also helping people who have trouble with their boat or people who are about to sink. <laughs> right. And drown, so we are trying to make it before people drown. Okay, so so you're basically a lifeboat volunteer. Yeah. So if 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 a pan if a melee distress call comes in for some reason, you jump in a boat and off you go. Yeah, that's basically okay. it. Yeah. All right. Um, how do you train for that? They have really good sort of step by step learning methods, and it's like. Once a week, at least, uh, we have this um, training evening, mm-hmm. and uh, there we have everything from um, sort of navigation to uh, first aid, and uh, all sorts of different parts of how to handle a boat and uh, how you handle the messaging and all that sort of stuff. And you know, I'm on trainee level and then there's uh, all the way to captain and to chief okay so so at some point if you keep doing this you'll end up as a captain of a lifeboat do you think yeah that would be super cool so do, do you also like jump in the water and do like scuba scuba sort of stuff <laughs> well um i jump into water yes um in a very cold water too <laughs> <laughs> well it's been but, uh, what do you expect <laughs> yeah um we have this dry suit, so mm-hmm. we are mainly on the surface. Okay. So if something is uh, beneath the surface, then someone else has to be called for help. Yeah, it's because it's, it's a bit too late, usually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so you like you, if necessary, you jump out of the lifeboat into the water in a dry suit and, I don't know, do... Hope, hope the zipper is tight. Yeah, and then do sort of rescue operations like that. So sort of like like um, being a lifeguard at a swimming pool, but actually with boats in open water. 
Yeah, that's true. Awesome. Yeah. So what made you go into that? Well, um, I have been, oh, well, my family had a boat when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And then um, just last year, my sister-in-law said that um, she had been training with a dog and had this basic course, uh, weekend course, and uh, said that I might be interested. And then I went to the weekend course and, well, Did you I mean, train, <laughs> training with a dog? Yeah, some people train with a dog. Because if uh, there's a search and rescue, we also take the dogs uh, on islands. Oh, I see. So you also do search and rescue on land if there's sort of water involved. So like if someone's lost on an island, you will go and find them. Okay, yeah. sorry. I, I, it hadn't occurred to me that, that the sort of lifeboats would have dogs on them. <laughs> Sometimes they <laughs> so, do. Okay. They're very handy. <laughs> okay, so your, your sister-in-law was going to this, this dog training lifeboat thing and you went along? Uh, she had done it already. And okay. then she said that there's a new course coming up on last autumn. And then I was there and a few other people and yeah. Okay. So I got so fascinated on it. So I'm, so I'm really what, on it. <laughs> Excellent. So what, what is the, what is the fascination? Uh, like if there's an emergency in water, I'm in. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm trying to explain. Um, so there is, uh, we have a really, really nice boat, which goes fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speed boats. I like speed boats. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And um, it's it's really nice when you know that you get to help someone when you go there sure. and, and time and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, um, we are also helping the authorities. Well, that's not the exciting part, but it's part of this stuff. But um, I think being on a boat and, you know, hopping into water and all that sort of stuff, it's just something that spikes up uh, the adrenaline. So you, you get to be in your own um, sort of thriller novel. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Precisely. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I get to live it. Fantastic. Um, and you started that quite recently. Yeah, it's just uh, uh, in August last year, and now it's springtime and the summer coming. And, okay. and now, again, be- if you don't mind me bringing it up, it's worth pointing out you're in your mid forties. Yeah, it's right? fine. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because again, something, something that we, so, something that it's very common for people to think that okay, I am, I don't know, over twenty five. I can't do anything like like jumping into the sea out of a lifeboat to save somebody or whatever. Like there's, and one of the things that we've, we've had quite a few interviews on so far is people who have taken up, for example, historical martial arts in their forties or in their fifties or whatever. And it's just, it's just, I think maybe a good idea to just highlight the fact that you didn't have to start this when you were a kid. No, right? no means. Right. Okay. So, so people listening, if you're, if you're interested in doing something similar, the fact that you may be, you know, an actual grown-up and not some 30-year-old child should be known. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and now my youngest is six years old and I have the time to do that kind of stuff. So now I can leave him um, to his grandparents or to his dad because my husband is his competent father, parent. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, sh- it shouldn't even need saying. Well, one would, but actually, sadly, in many cases, it does. Yeah, um, yeah. I have 
seen that. It's not so obvious. It's a heartbreaking stage they go through when they decide they don't need you anymore. But actually, yeah, it's it has its it has its um, compensations. Yeah, and I've done my children. Four is quite enough. Four is plenty. Yeah, I've got two, and that's 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 yeah, plenty. Um, <clears throat> okay, so you've written a novel, and you do like sea rescue volunteering, and you run snorkel martial arts classes and you have kids and you have like you're doing a phd and so i'm not sure i even should bother asking this question but what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet uh becoming a worldwide bestseller (laughs) well okay top tip when somebody mentions writing in an interview on a podcast plug the shit out of your book I'm not very good at it's like I'm a fin marketing what I can do is it's like walking into hell okay I have a suggestion all right okay Joanna Penn wrote a book called how to market a book and the reason half my income comes from my books these days is thanks to reading that book and acting on what it says um okay I will read it she also has a podcast called the creative pen which is one of the very few podcasts I never miss all right. Um, and I've, I've even been on it twice. So, um, yes, there's some sporty stuff on there. Um, two, <laughs> two out of about 700 episodes have me in there. <laughs> right. But, yeah, it's the, the thing that really sorted my head out around marketing it's, is the difference between interrupting people to shout at them about what you want to sell them and uh-huh. letting people who would be glad to know, know about what you're trying to sell them. Yeah. Right? So, like, the, the way I always think of it, if your favorite band was coming to town and you didn't know about it, and the lead uh-huh. singer sent you an email and said, Ah, Katrina, uh, we're playing in your town um, next Saturday, and here's, like, 10% off the tickets if you, if you want to come, because um, it would be nice to see you there. You wouldn't be like, running. yeah, yeah, exactly. You wouldn't be like, well, fuck you for advertising at me, you, you shallow bastard. You'd be, <laughs> you'd be like, oh my god, thank you so much. I'm so glad. I didn't want to miss it, and fantastic. Yeah. And right, okay. <laughs> so basically, marketing done right, people say thank you when you advertise stuff to them. Yeah. Right. That to me is like the gold standard. So if you, if you think of it like that, like so, the people who would enjoy reading your book. If you let them know about your book, you are doing them a favor. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that's how I think of it. That's how I get my head around it. That's, that's a very good way to think of it. Yeah. And, you know, and it's actually true. Like when I send out sales emails for like the next course or whatever I'm, um, selling, then if I do it right, people mm-hmm. do email me to say thank you for letting them know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're always, if you have an email list, you're always going to, every time you send out an email, some people will unsubscribe just because that's the nature of how email lists work. Um, but if the people who are interested find out about it, they will be glad to find out about it. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so your, the idea you haven't acted on yet is to market the shit out of your book. Yes. <laughs> that would be the best uh, way to put it. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, Joanna Penn's How to Market a Book is the, probably the best first step. All I right. put it on my reading list. <laughs> Do. All right. Last question. Somebody gives you a million euros, as we're in Finland now, 
to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide? How would you spend it? Now, this was a very difficult to come up with. Um, and I don't think I have as brilliant idea as some people have, but uh, the idea is to instruct teachers um, by making a video material uh, mm-hmm. to give the teachers and daycare people uh, so on why kids should be encouraged to play outdoors and should not be told that leave the sticks alone. And the video would also advise um, how the personnel would safely sort of um, uh, guide children and show uh, how girls and boys wrestle, since most humans do have like four limbs. It's not like boys only have them. (laughs) And it's like, um, get people moving and instead of saying no. So, so you would go to sort of preschool age and, and teach the teachers how to get the kids play fighting with each other more effectively. Yeah. And that would then presumably lead to the, the kids being better able to do historical martial arts later on. Yeah. And not be afraid of it. And not be afraid. That's a really good idea. That's and a really good of, idea. Okay. Some of the money I would use on... Uh, marketing and distribution and telling the headmasters of these uh, schools of teachers mm-hmm. and um, on different countries that this material exists because again marketing is something that tells about that there is this material which can be used yeah. and um, so education would go on and um, yeah okay this this is my idea that uh, because I have gotten from uh, fencing that I'm not afraid of stuff anymore. Like, Right, okay. I would love to give that idea to children. Well, I have given to mine, but to other children too, that uh, if there is a stick coming toward you, you don't necessarily have to be afraid of it. Uh, it's like... Yeah, you can just deal with it. Yeah, just go for it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a uh, lever. <laughs> Okay, so now with a, a million euros, you could make a pretty spiffy video um, and getting it. Okay, I guess one of the tricks would be getting it in enough languages so that it would work in lots of different countries. Okay. Yeah. All right, and then basically getting it incorporated into the teacher training for the teachers who are teaching young children. Yeah. Okay, that's a really good idea. Um, so. I think one of the concerns that teachers have is if they allow children to wrestle and whack each other with sticks and whatnot, then they will grow up to be violent. I think this is the opposite. I agree. I mean, I teach martial arts for a living. have done for a long time. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I think the the biggest obstacle you will have in that regard is that um, our culture generally has gotten its head stuck in the idea that um, children should not allow to be violent in any way, shape, or form. But they are. But they are. They're natural little yeah. savages, is what they are. Yeah, yeah. They hit and bite, and you know, everything. I've been bitten so many times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember when when my youngest was particularly little. She was like four. Like if she was cross with me, she would haul her arm all the way back and then whack me as hard as she could <laughs> on the leg, and it's like. 
Yeah, okay, no, you're not allowed to do that, so, you know, whatever. Yeah, but um, if you're with the same size child, they would learn as a, you know, small children that this hurts if you do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, they get bruises anyway. So yeah. if they get bruises, like if someone's, like, smacking you, obviously you have to cover some places, like yeah. um, eyes and stuff. But anyway, it's like... and. You know, I, I mean, think the modern society is a bit too careful in some aspects. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see, you know, judo has an excellent kids program, right? Generally speaking, I mean, certainly in okay. the UK. Yeah. Um, and it's a really good starting point for kids to learn martial arts. But if it was that sort of thing was like super a super common part of the curriculum in kindergartens, where, yeah. you know, you've got playtime and nap time and snack time. There could also be wrestle time. Yeah. And if they were taught, okay, this is how we wrestle nicely with our friends. Yes. Right? Then they could do all of that without hurting each other particularly. Um, yeah. And no more risk than, you know, falling off a swing. Right. Um, that, yeah, that's a great idea. And then, of that's- course, then they would come to my classes sometime later with some <laughs> really good foundational skills like how to control a stick and mm-hmm. how to wrestle. How to fall. And how to fall. Oh, it my was, God. It would make my it life be, so much easier. <laughs> yeah. And it would save so much money, for instance, in Finland and all the countries where you have this icy time. Yeah. People learn to fall. Like, like, you know, when I was teaching beginners classes in Helsinki, I would always start in the first lesson by teaching people to fall. And I'll tell them, look, I want you to have something that's actually useful to you in your everyday life. And... You live in Finland. There's ice on the streets. You will fall at some point or another. You might as well yeah. learn to do it well. Yeah. Um, and so we were falling on concrete, no problem. Um, yeah. Teaching it. Yeah. Because if you do it right, it's fine. It doesn't. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, you've you've done it. <laughs> you've been in my classes. I know. <laughs> um, but it's it's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be it would it would make every martial arts teacher's life a lot easier if everyone had a foundation in. Swinging sticks and wrestling. Yeah, like Brilliant. I started Aikido, and they already talk about uh, how to get my first belt. Okay, like on a second time. Well, yeah, because you have you have some foundations. Yeah, it makes life a lot easier. Brilliant. Um, well, if I had the money, I'd give it to you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Here's an imaginary chest of imaginary euros. There you go. Um, Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Katrina. It's been lovely talking to you. No, it's been wonderful to be here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Katrina. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you will find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people and let us know your opinion about Finnish fencing sabers from the 19th century and about Fiore's break and exchange and anything else that takes your fancy. As always, I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. 
And of course, I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us in a fortnight when I'll be talking to Zach Pinsent about tailoring. He is a tailor specialising in 18th and early 19th century clothing. He always looks magnificent. And we discuss trousers and pockets and where to get your hats and what sort of hats you should be getting when you go there. And organising an 18th century style ball and many other things besides. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in a fortnight. (laughs) 